Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1940 and 41, when German planes were dropping bombs on London, many Londoners tried to get away. Some went to the countryside, some left England entirely, but others, for a whole host of reasons, couldn't get out of the city. And their refuge had to be a little closer to home. As a precaution against Germany's flying bomb, the city of London has opened five new and spacious underground shelters. Many of these underground shelters were in the city's vast subway system, and lots of residents soon realized there was a stealth group sheltering with them, and it was awfully glad they had headed underground. They've been studied in London, and they were also famous for the fact that they were biting the people who took refuge there there during the Blitz, during the Second World War. So that's why people usually call it the London underground mosquito, but it lives everywhere, all, all over the world. Evolutionary biologist Menno Skildhausen says this very special sort of mosquito arose specifically to feast on humans. This is a, a species of mosquito that seems to have evolved relatively recently. It's split off from an above-ground mosquito, but this one lives mostly underground and, and is mostly known from places that humans have created, from underground tubes, from cellars, from basements, and they have specialized in biting people feeding on human blood, whereas their ancestors were feeding on on birds. Skildhausen is a senior research scientist at Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. He says these mosquitoes are amazing examples of how something we think is slow and plodding and hard to see, evolution, can actually happen shockingly fast. The mosquitoes, as it turns out, didn't just change their food source or their habitat, they changed their mating rituals just for us. And their willingness to adapt to the weirdness of human cities doesn't end there. They have even more recent evolution, which which causes them to be different in different metro tubes. So these these underground mosquitoes that live in, in one of the metro lines is is different, genetically different, from the same species of underground mosquito that lives in a different subway line because these lines don't... Uh, there's very little connection between them. So these mosquitoes, in one line, they, they breed among themselves and they evolve differently from the ones in another line. Though occasionally there will be interbreeding amongst mosquitoes who live on different lines of the London tube. Scientists have studied this and concluded the only way this could happen is that mosquitoes transfer from one line to the other at Oxford Circus Station. So I guess they do occasionally change trains, but uh, it happens rarely and that prevents these different uh, sort of subbreeds of mosquitoes from mixing and merging. Skildhausen says when human cities move in, lots of animals and plants just disappear. But the ones that adapt are using the evolutionary processes that Darwin described. And a few lucky members of their species have mutations that help them survive city life. Those mutations quickly take over and spread through the gene pool, something that hasn't just happened with mosquitoes. So, for example, uh, blackbirds, which is a European bird species that you find in cities, they have differences in their DNA in many different genes, many different parts of the genome compared to the forest blackbirds, which also still exist. And another example is the, the, the famous peppered moth, these moths that became dark-winged during the Industrial Revolution yes. because they were better camouflaged against the, uh, against the soot and trees. They were in some biology textbook I had where there was a picture of like the whitish, but like you say, kind of speckly moth. But then as the air got darker and there was soot all over the place, they got darker to blend in so people wouldn't, people or animals or whatever wouldn't be like, hmm, 
a white moth on a black background. That's easy to find. Exactly. That's what that's what a lot of birds were thinking, and they right. and they picked off the ones that were easily visible, and that caused the evolution of this this mutation. And we now know, since two years, which exactly which gene was involved. Hmm. Uh, it's a particular gene that is sort of a switch that changes the coloration of the wings of the of the moths, and they can actually calculate backwards by very uh, exact genetic analysis when this mutation took place, and they pinpointed to 1819, which is exactly at the start of the Industrial Revolution. So that's a case where we can really study how that mutation took place, how it spread, and how it also disappeared, because in the 1960s, 1950s and 1960s, uh, the, the Clean Air Acts were introduced in, in England and in the, in the US probably as well, which forced factories to clean up their fumes. So the, the trees became lighter again. The advantage of those dark-winged moths disappeared and they became white again. So you see this, this evolutionary seesaw taking place over one and a half centuries, which is, which is beautiful, but it's, it concerns only a single gene. So it's very, very simple, very minimal evolution. Do you think that the reason we think evolution takes a really long time is because we think about the evolution of people? But when you talk about something like bugs that live and die so quickly, they can iterate so fast and get to a more advantageous like form of themselves very quickly? Yeah, that's a good point because, um, of course, the, the generation time, the time that it takes from one generation to the next is sort of the evolutionary clock speed, you could yeah, say. Evolution, yeah. you can only see the effect of natural selection in the next generation. If, if that next generation only appears 20 years later, then evolution works more slowly than if the next generation is there in a few months. So many insects have two or three generations per year, whereas humans reproduce about 100 times as slowly. So yes, many species that have these short generation times can evolve faster than we can. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Menno Skildhausen, the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. So I've got to ask you about what, at least in the U.S., was a very sort of famous or notorious event. Uh, And it was the uh, pictures beamed, at least around this country, a pizza rat um, in the New York subways, this rat that was, you know, going through the subway with a slice of pizza, as you do if you're a New Yorker. And um, and I wonder how that picture struck you and what it said to you. Well, it's, I mean, it, it looks like there's a similar pictures of, you know, a, a fox in, in, uh, in London standing in the street and looking as if it's waiting for an ATM in a queue for the ATM. <laughs> so you have these 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 really funny pictures of urban animals that are behaving like 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 completely normal sanguine urbanites. Right. Of course in in the case of the rats, yeah, they're really urban animals and they feed on human foods, uh, including pizza slices. And in a, in a few cases we we actually know that they have evolved their digestive system to deal with this this new type type of food. There's a there's a, a mouse uh, also in New York, and, but not like the domestic mouse, but a wild mouse that lives in, in Central Park and in some of the other large parks in New York City, which has evolved since the time that it became marooned in those parks because it used to live, of course, in the forest that was there before the city was built. Since that time, they have evolved to suit the particular characteristics of the park that they live in. And in Central Park, that which is the most heavily visited park in New York City, that means that they have they have changed their digestive system to to deal with very fatty foods, for example, and also with a toxin called aflatoxin, which is a toxin that is produced by fungi that grow on discarded peanuts. 
because these these animals are are not feeding on their natural diet anymore, but they're feeding on discarded peanuts and other junk food, and they have evolved, they have by natural selection changed their ability to deal with this completely different diet than they had been used to in the centuries before. Hmm. And how does it work? Like, what is the mechanism by which um, a mouse that lives on sort of uh, pretty lean, natural stuff out in the countryside somewhere, that that mouse comes to over, I don't know how, what kind of period of time, um, comes to live on donuts and, you know, peanuts that people drop and muffins and little bits of pizza. Like, how mm-hmm. does that happen? Yeah, it's it's often, we often say, you know, they evolved and natural selection did this or they adapted, but it, it really, the nitty gritty of the process is, is sometimes very hard to dissect and to imagine. In, in the case of these mice, you could imagine that the amount of let's say, natural food available and the amount of new food available was very skewed. There was very little natural food and there was a lot of human-generated food. So any mouse that had a mutation that allowed it to deal with this new food, which the the old-fashioned mice may have got sick from, for example, and died, any mouse that has a mutation that allows it to survive on this new food would be able to produce more offspring, which would spread that particular mutation, that gene. And over generations, this process would happen all over, over and over again, leading to these new mutations, these changed genes from taking over the gene pool of these old mice. And the mouse itself, the population, would slowly change bit by bit so that the new mice that are living there now are completely different from the ones that were living there to begin with. Right. Right. And it's interesting because we talk about the process of evolution as if it's kind of neat and orderly. But what it feels like is that you're saying that a species survival, especially when humans come to town and are like, things are different now. um, It's really all down to like the luck that in a population, you've got a few moths that are dark when soot starts filling the air. And and if there just weren't a few that were different that could, like, fill that vacuum, they'd be done. They'd just be, com- right? Yeah, they'd be done. Or or they'd have to wait for the same process to happen somewhere else where there, where there is such a mutant and then recolonizing this place where they have gone extinct. So, yeah, it's really uh, largely down to luck. But, of course, if you're talking about small animals, insects, plants, you're really talking about millions and millions of of animals, and every one of those has a few mutations. So the chance that there's one or two of them in there that have the right mutations at some point becomes becomes large enough for this process to happen. But it's still very, very unpredictable. We don't know whether a species will be able to evolve, how it will do that, whether it's going to be sustainable. It's, it's, it's always a surprise. Uh, you wrote a, an op-ed uh, a, a few years back in um, a Dutch national newspaper, and you were like, you know, things are changing all the time. There's evolution. And so trying to preserve how things were in, you know, 1700 or 1500 is kind of artificial, right? Because the you could choose any time period to make things, you know, the same as they were then. But why particularly do that? Um Explain the the pushback to that and 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 uh, like the reaction to that and like what that tells you about the conflict within us about nature versus people. 
Yeah, it's it's a v- sort of nature conservation is a very complex topic because people tend to think of individual species. We tend to think of preserving a particular species. But you know, nature is like it's it's like a it's like a pie. There's the the, the food that is generated by the sun that is generated by by photosynthesizing plants is a fixed amount and all the species have to have to to the whole ecosystem has to run on that energy. When I when I say nature is evolving, nature is changing, and we see this happening in, in, in cities especially, of course, what I mean is that I don't think we should use that as an excuse to to convert the environment into a completely human-dominated area, but that we should rather focus on preserving a well-functioning, rich ecosystem and not worry so much on ex- about exactly which species are living in that ecosystem. Menno Skildhausen is a professor of evolutionary biology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Menno, thank you so much. Thank you very much. We've got another fascinating story of adaptation at our website. It's about a couple of species of fish that somehow figured out how to live alongside toxic chemicals, PCBs. In some ways, their resistance to toxins is a good thing. In other ways, not so much. We've got more at innovationhub.org.